Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of... Beneath the Screen of the Ultra Critics. Wow. I, didn't, I couldn't think of a Very Masterpiece Theater today. Wow, yeah. you actually took your job seriously once, that. Welcome to NPR. The theater thing. Yeah, I'm worried about your overall Masterpiece Theater now. thing. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, uh, you see what it is, is it's, uh, um, Hornby Peace Theater today. <laughs> Um, yeah, we, as Thad has said, we're going to be looking at two movies based off of Nick Hornby books. And, uh, I have, I've read neither of the books that these are based on. I believe Jeremiah is our resident hornball. Um, I've read High Fidelity uh, a few times. I haven't met Juliet Naked. I would be, I would actually be very interested to, to read it, but, uh, we can get to that when we talk about that yeah. movie. Uh, High Fidelity is the 2000 movie, although... Because it's 2000, it's on that weird precipice of the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, oh, it's it, this is 100% a 90s movie. There's no question. <laughs> is, 2000s movies don't start happening until after 9-11. Right. Um, I, I would agree with that. I would also add that like, in terms of, of generational divides, this is very, very much more a Gen X movie than I would say like a millennial movie, yeah. if that makes sense. It is, really... it, is, it is two things. It is, it is a Gen X movie, absolutely. And it is a sad, self-obsessed dude movie. So a Gen X movie. <laughs> I don't know why you felt the need. There to are do. women in Gen X, like. Yeah, but there aren't movies for women. In Gen- <laughs> oh yeah, that's okay. Um, it's directed by Stephen Frears, and it's one of those movies that has like seven writers. Well, not that's an exaggeration, but like one, two, three, four writers. Mm, mm. And. As stated, it is based on the Coinbee book. And have you guys? So technically, five. Like it's an ad- it's a it's a screenplay based on a novel adapted by four. Right. Different writers. How familiar are you guys with Hornbee at all? Uh, I mean, a bit. Uh, I I know him more from his nonfiction right. writing. Um, and also he collaborated on an album with Ben Folds, and I am uh, a Ben Folds uh, fan, right. so I know about that. Uh, it's, it's quite bizarre because uh, uh, actually nothing, but I know this name and I don't know how or why I appear to know this name. I, I wikied him like, why do I know this name? I still don't know why. So he Could it be about a boy or a fever pitch? I mean, I think that I haven't seen any of those things. I think that I just know that he exists as a conceit. So gotcha. I'm going to go with no. <laughs> well, as you've seen from these two movies, the thing that Nick Hornby understands really good really well i should say is he understands fandoms and obsessions Hmm. and like how people who are obsessed with a thing talk because Uh, it's yeah i actually uh opened when we first started watching high fidelity opened with oh so it's a movie about autism and then (laughs) jack black showed up i'm like oh and there's adhd the true friend of the autistic uh And then clinical depression rolled in, and I was like, wow, okay, so we have the trifecta. So much about Gen X was just explained in the first 25 minutes of this movie. Continue. Well, yeah, I didn't really get that, because for me, I was like, I've been a part of or witnessed these conversations throughout most of my late teens and Mm -hmm. early 20s. (laughs) Yeah, I I was, I I too uh, hung around the house. Right. (laughs) Well, not just that, but like, talking about movies like this talking about comics yeah. like this 
I've witnessed you, Eric, and Dale, and Jono talk about video games. <laughs> <laughs> how dare you? Yeah, that's, that's not wrong. But and Clover. Anyway? I can't leave out Clover. <laughs> but, like, yeah, and this is... We could just make a list of all the people that we know who talked about nerds. Well, like, when this is also, like, it's not so much nerd culture, so much as, like, mm. nerd culture likes to think it's unique, but this is how music fans talk, this is how movie fans talk, oh, this yeah, is yeah. how sports fans talk. And us, I think I would I would add a, a slight caveat to that, uh, and I think Kara would probably go along with this. It's how dude fandoms talk, which I do think is different. I think predominantly women fandoms have a slightly different presentation. Am I wrong about this, Kara? Yeah. So, so it's like I would say that like mixed fandoms, and so like video games are a pretty mixed fandom. You get men and women, and you get a lot of um, breakdowns. Well, now, per, yeah. And per games and stuff, you, but when you come to fandoms that are almost exclusively women-only fandoms, or women dominate the fandom space, and like my backgrounds in like Lolita fashion and certain very specific anime and manga, um, as well as like Harry Potter, huge into the Harry Potter fandom. Uh, rest in peace to the Harry Potter book series <laughs> that have been corrupted irrevocably for me. I will never buy another thing from you again. Um, it is a little bit different in the way that we talk, but not in the feelings behind it. Uh, we, mm. we also have, have a much higher percentage of wanting to marry the people in our fandoms. Right. Discussing as though we can or will marry them in a very different way. From I don't know. I mean, I feel like the guy from Juliet Naked definitely wanted to <laughs> marry. The, you know, we'll get to that. <laughs> well, and even um, before we get too much in, uh, Kelly, you want to sum up High Fidelity? Uh, summarize it? Yes, I could. Um, <laughs> there are many things I'm capable of doing. Uh, so High Fidelity is a John Cusack film, and I, that's probably not a fair way to say it. Actually, it, maybe it is, because like, his face is on the cover literally nine times. Well, I would argue that this movie works as well as it does because of John Cusack. Of John Cusack. John Cusack is always hmm. both very emotional and very charming and very beloved, and if you had somebody that had slightly less of a wonderful screen presence, it would be almost... A distasteful movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he's somebody that we already believe in and like and trust. Like, he's a very specific, again, like, Gen X character actor. And since we know that he is both a bastard with a heart of gold and awkward, we sort of believe in him as he transforms. Um, but his name is Rob Gordon. Uh, he lives in Chicago owning a record store with his own apartment and that alone haunted me this entire film i'm so sorry it's the year 2000 kara yeah, it's a different hurt. it's a different country it's a different planet it hurt me so bad every moment to the point where like oh. hit, hit, she makes like what 70 to ninety thousand. he claims and i'm like yeah. the yeah. fact that you don't and you're able to do both of this <laughs> yeah, it's his apartment. Too. Okay, sorry. No, we're, okay. we we cannot talk about 2023 in this. This is 23 years before that. <laughs> All right. So, um, uh, Rob has a. Uh, it begins with Rob breaking up with his long-term girlfriend Laura, who he lives with. Uh, Laura is extremely cool, and it begins with an argument where he explains that she is not on his top five list of all-time breakups, and then he explains to us uh, the various other women and girls who have broken his heart at various points. And then finally admits that she is on his top five list. He's added somebody else to keep her off of it because their relationship is stressing on the rocks. He is obsessed with music and albums, like 
individual artists and songs, but like the concept of the album, I think, is what really um, follows him a lot in records. He owns a record store and has two uh, clowns, for lack of a better <laughs> word, who uh, work there, and they all have uh, incredibly emotional circular arguments all day about music records who is deserving to buy things from their store who is correct about opinions of taste as he slowly begins to have a breakdown and gradually reveals to the audience the reason for his and laura's relationship ending which is that he cheated on her while he didn't know that she was pregnant and also borrowed four thousand dollars that he's never paid back and never made a serious commitment to her and admitted to her he thinks about sleeping with other people because he's kind of obsessed with women and also very bad with people um, Laura moves in with someone else. He continually calls their apartment and shows up outside in the rain to look sad. And things begin to sort of fall apart and degrade as he wonders who he is. He reaches out to these other women and find out. And sometimes he destroyed their lives, which makes him feel better. And then sometimes they just accidentally rip his heart out through his ass. And that does not make him feel better. Eventually, um he finds out Laura calls him grieving because her father just died and her mother has asked him to uh, accompany Laura to the funeral which he does and after a spat with a mutual friend who tells him where he tells a mutual friend I can't go around apologizing to Laura for the rest of my life she says maybe you should do it once at which point he realizes he has never sincerely apologized to Laura sincerely apologizes to her they get back together um, during all this, some hooligans have stolen records from his store. He ends up listening to their mixtape and produces their first album. EP. EP, thank you. Words yeah, are hard. The times have changed. <laughs> and Laura, now back with this, who is, by the way, um, a lawyer and makes a ton of money and is really uh, stunningly beautiful and successful in her life, and her family is obviously very rich, uh, takes back her kind of loser boyfriend who finally says that he would like to consider marrying her because he continually chases after the fantasy of perfect woman which she smiles and says thank you but doesn't say yes or no to marriage throws him a massive party to have his first EP reduced and then one of his store employees Jack Black uh, sings a song and uh, everything ends up okay and everyone's happy except for Laura I could never be happy. <laughs> the movie doesn't end on that note. That's my insertion. I'm sorry. It's it's not fair. No, no, it's, it is fair to some. <laughs> Laura also has the shortest bangs I have ever seen outside of a car <laughs> cutting their own hair. It's very unfair for me to say that. It was the early 2000s. I want you to know I've watched a couple of reactions of High Fidelity, and the women who have reacted mm. have almost all unanimously been like, oh my god, what the hell are those bangs? Yeah, what did they do to her hair? It looks like she was attacked. She's like, I I can't dye my... They have an argument where it's like, you're not cool and fun. Like, when I was a DJ and you looked up to me. She's like, <laughs> I work at a lawyer's office. I can't just dye my hair pink. And then the, we see a flashback. And bitch, her hair is not pink. <laughs> Fury. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kara was, was insulted about uh, pink hair uh, uh, stolen ballot. <laughs> <laughs> so... Also, I did not... Uh, to to, de- to derail before we get back to talking about the movie, uh, I didn't realize that there had been a TV series made out of this a couple of years ago starring Zoe Kravitz, and that sounds very yeah. It uh... yeah, I forgot that sub plot line where he's infuriated that his girlfriend sleeps with other people, but he has slept with other people. Yeah, that that came out during yeah. I think lockdown. Yeah, it was 2020, which explains why right. I have no idea. It happened. <laughs> 
But yeah, like Rob, Rob, the character of Rob, I, I think you, you cannot talk about this movie without having to grapple with Rob. Um, An asshole. <laughs> because Rob, ra- Rob raises the eternal question of, can you do an unreliable narrator without a lot of people missing? <laughs> and as someone who watched this movie in his 20s versus someone who is watching this movie like near the end of his 30s, no, no, you can't. <laughs> You, the, the, when you are in your 20s, you are too stupid to watch movies, and it should be illegal. Right, so here's the thing. Like, it is amazing, because I've watched this movie, like, in my 20s, and in my 30s, and in my 40s. And I'm like, it's yeah. wild that each time I watch it, like, my opinion has changed to the point where I'm just like, yeah. oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> and this is also, like, also the realization of the movie understands Rob's a horrible person. Yeah. Um... I, I think that this is, like, going back to what Kara said sort of at the beginning, like, John Cusack is what sells the movie, but there's a part of me that's like, I wonder if John Cusack is too charming to be this person. Right. Like, so, I don't know. This movie does, one of the other things that Nick Hornby does a lot in his writings is first person. And mm. so both these movies are very heavily with narr- are very heavy with narration. Um, mm. What this one does and what his books tend to do is when you do narration or inner monologues, they don't work if you're not willing to show, like, to pick at the things, like, the insecure things that people think about, but never mm-hmm. say out loud mm. because we're too cool. Or you don't want to say something yourself, that hurtful. Ter- right. <laughs> but, like. Some of us have terrible brain impulse problems and say exactly what we think, and that's what's haunted our childhoods. Continue, what? my apologies. Well, yeah. <laughs> but right, but like, and because there are things he says, you're like, "Good Christ, man!" <laughs> um, uh, and also like his reactions to things. Like, there's a level of self-involvedness to this that is almost impressive. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, I don't know how you hear a woman tell you that she wasn't that she was coerced into sex. And then feel happy that you realize, oh, that's right, I broke up with her. Yeah, because, like, he's not even listening when she says that. And it's, it's like... Yeah, one of his ex-girlfriends... So one of his ex-girlfriends, he broke up with her because she wouldn't have sex with him. And then years later, he goes back and is like, hey, why did you leave me and have sex with the next guy you dated? And she bursts into tears and explains she didn't. She was just so humiliated and traumatized by him leaving her that when the next guy she dated kind of wanted, demanded sex, she just couldn't say no. And, like, was this obviously horrifying experience. And she calls him an asshole and is, like, sobbing, clearly horribly traumatized. He's like, oh, right. Right. I broke up with her. I forgot. I feel so much better. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, Uh, that's never revisited. uh, It's never revisited. No. Like, it's, and it, well, one of the things that makes that, like that whiplash even wilder well i don't know about even wilder but like the because like that right after that he visits another ex and this is one that like they were just like depressed people together and at the end of this interaction he he clearly decides even though the opportunity is there not to have sex with her in a way that kind of reads as him making a mature decision so like his level of awareness of right and wrong oscillates wildly. Which, to be fair, is how we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like him being a hypocrite, I don't, I, like, that's the thing, is I don't necessarily think it's bad writing. Yeah. 
But I also, considering this is a movie that, from my awareness, is largely appreciated by, like, men in their late teens and 20s, makes me worried for how many people fucking Well, like, this is also the thing. The problem with creating art is you can't control what age range sees it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because this is a movie about being in your, like, mid to late 30s and realizing that you've been acting 19 for like right and also like this is basically the 500 days of summer problem Mm. (laughs) like it's not trying to endorse the behavior it's actually going you're fucked up but you have just cast incredibly charming dudes to be these people um because otherwise it's taxi driver yeah (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, honestly, even Taxi Driver has plenty of people who find yeah. uh, uh, De Niro's <laughs> um, role someone to emulate. Honestly, honestly the, the thing that I walk... So in terms of like, okay, let's talk about what the movie is like. The writing, the plot, the acting, the chemistry. All of those things are hmm. good. I would not say this is a bad movie or a movie I disliked by any means. If I had my druthers... Or it's an unrealistic movie, I wouldn't say that necessarily either. But if I had my druthers, they would not have ended up back together because his minimal amount of growth as a person is so ridiculously over-rewarded <laughs> by the film that it, it 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 put me... like you got, I did not see this movie in my 20s. I know these no. men in my 20s. I slept with these men in my 20s. <laughs> I soothed these men in my 20s. And all I was like was like, Laura, no... No, you have a much better job. <laughs> You're a much better person. He is a sad sack who has just learned that sometimes he's an asshole. He is not like, worth like literally... the amount of energy you need to bring him up to the level of a human. He needs to figure it out on his own. Please stop sleeping with the guy you're sleeping with because he's also a tool. And eat, pray, love your way to Italy. <laughs> Drop them all. Like, it's... It's great because the last image of Rob, like the ending scene, the putting a bow tie on everything, is him like delivering this line like it's profound that like, I'm I'm making this tape for Laura of things that she would like, things that would make her happy. It's like the first time I've I've really figured out how to do that. It's like, it's the first time (laughs) you've thought about making your, like, you've tried to occupy your partner's perspective and think about what they want. The the audacity of just, oh wait, she's a separate person? It's like, it's like a horror movie. (laughs) It it is, it's like, no, God, no. So this is also like what an issue with a lot of of charming, and it's full of like charming cast, like with a great chemistry, like everybody really occupying the like you you can see these people being friends and being in relationships and stuff, but it's like the things that are serious are brushed past so much. It's it's just wild. Well, it's also like one of the things of like this is a main issue with a lot of rom coms. It's once you start there's. This is we we talk about this all the time, but movies aren't real. Yeah, what? Yeah, I know, I know. This is actually a huge problem I've been counting with the younger people. Work. <laughs> yeah, here's here's a here's a here's a second problem though, Jeremiah. People don't right. know that. But also at the same time, I don't know why, but the scene where he goes, "She's in the fucking phone book," <laughs> has stayed with me over the years. <laughs> it's a it's a great delivery. <laughs> She should be. She's from. She should be on Neptune. She's a myth, a legend. 
of like this notion if there's, of if there's putting a woman so far above what you like she's an actual human being so the fact that you can just call her like you can any other human being yeah but also him realizing that maybe she isn't yeah that she's just a person yeah. like all, all like it's it's it, it like that's the thing that I do like about this movie is you see him see through his own bullshit over time but like by the end he's changed so little <laughs> that it's it's just odd like to at this point in my life like the 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 way it lands is so strange I I really agree like the ending left me like a little bit I was just like huh like it almost should have I never want to say this is how I would have done it but I right. think I almost feel like maybe it should have just ended at the club, maybe? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I... I well, because, well, like, the thing the, I, I think, think that the thing that, that does the best job of, I feel like, communicating the growth that they're trying to show Rob having gone through is the marriage proposal conversation. Yeah. And, and then that just sort of... Like, yeah, the, the final couple of scenes after that, like, don't do a lot to add to that growth. Because, again, like Kara was saying, like, we go to the party, which is something that she predominantly put together for him against his wishes. <laughs> like, dragging him kicking and screaming into a thing that he wanted to do. So the, And it's, yeah, this, it, it's just so strange. Scene, the, the marriage proposal scene, right? Where right. He, he try, he's trying to explain to her, and I, I do understand the way he's trying to explain is that, like, I chase the idea of perfection over the reality of the person in front of me who I like and love. But what he mm. actually says is not really nice and is really more like, mm. I will settle for the person I can get rather than chase the perfection I know is unattainable. And he very clearly does mean settle. Right. Like, not settle down, but settle for less. And... She kind of like la like affectionately laughs at him and then plans him this party that she understands he really needs right after her father died. Um and all <laughs> Yeah, her her trajectory at the end of this movie is uh oof. And all that I could think of was the the cool girl speech from Gone Girl. <laughs> like it entered my mind unbidden and repeated itself. Kara, it's always in your mind. Don't don't lie to the nice people listening to the podcast. You are always on some level thinking that speech. I am every day. And I was like, Yeah, she's just like in a la loving, chagrined way as he's like, I'll settle for you because it's not like I'm actually capable of doing better. She's like, ha ha and it's like, honey, you're not capable of doing this good. <laughs> you just got this woman at a vulnerable time, and she has a memory of you being cool and doesn't realize that you are not good enough for her. <laughs> be grateful. Uh, he should be. Um, it's, he's not. It's, yeah. That being said, this was the first time a lot of people uh, saw Jack Black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was for me. I think I've seen him before this. <laughs> Sorry. But dumb. Uh, well, it's also like, it's, because if you've seen Jack Black before this, that whole thing of, oh, he's going to suck, doesn't quite land as good. Because, like, yeah. of course he's going to be good. Because I didn't, I don't, <laughs> I don't think I knew about Tenacious D until after I had seen right. this movie. Um. I, I don't remember when or where I learned of Jack Black. I want to say it was probably, um... Uh, Shallow Hal. That's yeah, the first time I really remember him crashing into my mind. 
I don't know why, but the scene of Rob slapping him when he's doing the top five Lord's dad, dad uh, ranking. Uh, yeah. Well, oh, did that? Did that? Did that send you back to the studio? No, that, I just uh... love the, the fact like that's the one time he's ever like outside of the time like he broke up with Laura. He loses his shit. Is when Jack Black's also, character is can, being can legitimately just... like kind of like I don't know what's the word a douche. Yeah. And he just sort of shakes him and slaps him, and Jack Black is still going. On. Can can we also just uh, in turn in a movie full of like jackass dudes? Can can we just like have a moment of appreciation for Dick, played by uh, Todd Luiso, <laughs> who is uh, just trying his best? The, the Moby guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because um, uh, he meets a girl who is played by. Sarah Gilbert. Uh, Sarah Gilbert. Uh, yep. And she's like, I like Green Day, which is very funny to hear, uh, as though it's like this <laughs> underground indie, indie band, which it was much more, you know, pre-American idiot. Right. And he's like, here's this other band that sounds a lot like them. And he puts on this record. I'm like, holy shit, that other band does sound a lot like Green Day. <laughs> Um, and then they, like, go on a date and have a nice interaction. It's like, oh, here's a guy who's not obsessed with the idea of, like, hostility or gatekeeping or sniping. This is a man that has not embraced the identity of comic book store guy as his personal hero. Well, and even the movie even has a scene with one of the customers going, you guys are snobs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But this this is very much a movie of men who become comic book store guy, the predecessors to the men of Wikipedia, who don't, <laughs> who appear to love but not experience much joy in anything. Thad and I had an argument about this, but nothing really seems to make I them agree. happy except being dicks. Yeah, uh, I, I I I I disagree in we in a weird way, kind of, but not exactly. Yeah, we had a very deep uh, <laughs> conversation of like. Is this depression or is this just Gen X? <laughs> well, and also like the way they sort of begrudgingly admit something's good. Yeah. Hmm. Like the like <laughs> he comes in, it's like, what is this? You know those two kids who are in here? Yeah. This is them. No. <laughs> this is good. <laughs> Uh, or when they go and see uh, uh, the character of Marie DeSalle. Oh, yeah. Uh, Lisa Bonet. By, uh, um, yeah, played by Lisa Bonet. Uh, she's singing a Peter Frampton song, and he's, like, mad that she's making it good. <laughs> and it's like, ah, oh, I remember that age, and I was kind of like that. I, I regret every instance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, like... There is something, I think that's another harrowing thing about watching this movie as, a, like, a, 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 a now, as now ancient, fossilized, like, relic nerds is being like, oh no, <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't this bad all the time, but I've had Right, moments. and I think that's kind of what <laughs> High Fidelity was aiming at, <laughs> which is yeah, sort of like, because yeah. Reflections... Or like Funhouse mirrors. They don't they don't show you the whole thing, but they do show you the exaggeration things that you can't unsee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would Anyone who's been to like a comic convention, uh <laughs> yeah. The the kind of horrible person I was in nerddom was was a little bit different than these guys. It wasn't completely dissimilar, it's just um 
Well, I mean, these would also be the guys trying to police your presence yeah. in their dumb... The, the, yeah, I, it was... Bi- women are bitchier. Uh, men are outright mm. rude to your face in a way that women will often wait for their perfect moment for the advent of cruelty. So, <laughs> I'm not saying that we're better. I'm not going to sit here and pretend <laughs> I'm a better person. Just have different tactics. But yeah, but it is it is a little bit um, different. Definitely. Well, even when he's given his monologue and he, he goes into a thing about the problems I had with so-and-so, which is typical women schizo uh, problems. Mm. Which is again yeah. at that age you're under the imp- like this the impression you've been given both by society and the media of yeah women are crazy until you start to realize like no no I'm actually just an asshole and they're angry for a reason. <laughs> There's that um, right. I would also like to add the important caveat that some women are genuinely crazy and that's why you have to stop <laughs> crossing us because we. <laughs> We are crazy, and we will take a dark and terrible vengeance upon you. Uh, unfortunately, Laura is not the right type of crazy, because the right crazy woman would have done the Lily Allen, gone into his apartment with her key while he was at work, taken out all of his records, and very carefully sliced every single one of them with a penny <laughs> or a sharpened dime. Uh. That's what the crazy girl... The crazy girl is not the one that asks you... To put down the toilet seat. The crazy girl's the one that saves, waits, observes, takes her list of grievances, and uses it to systematically harm you. Well, what's also interesting I is... I know her. I don't know her. <laughs> that girl. <laughs> Somebody else. <laughs> Fair. But, like, the, the way that this movie is also a time capsule. Yes. Mm. Yes. Very in so many ways, and it's. I mean, I, w- I would have been fourteen when this came out, fifteen. Um, so in a weird way, even though this is about much older people, it would have felt geared towards me in that way that movies about adults are sometimes resonate too much with children, right? Like Ghostbusters, mm. right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's like oh, this is a time and a way of talking and enjoying things and being in relationships that I'm both personally past, but also, you know, sounding old as fuck. You know, 9-11 hit. <laughs> and yeah, actually, there were two. It hit twice. twice. Uh, well, three times. And that just... It's like, oh, this is from... There are now two before times in my life, which is probably a sign that things are going extremely well for me in general. Um, <laughs> well... <laughs> Yeah, because it's like, again, we, we as I mentioned earlier, it's wild to think that the record store isn't doing that well. And yet it seems to be yeah. doing okay. Yeah, there's no sense. It's that it's the, the, the problem of, of, like, you know, TV characters with huge right. apartments. Like, the same sort of just, you own this record store. It's not clear how you got it. Because, like, apparently, I don't know, like, he defeated the previous owner and just got the store. If I remember correctly, I think that was part of what the money was. Uh, ah, okay. Is that that may be a book yeah. thing, then, because yeah, I, I feel like they don't. $4,000 to buy a record store in Chicago? I don't think that's... I don't, the, I don't well, know. like I said, like, maybe, like, he had some money and he was only 4000 away, or maybe, like, this alone. Hmm. I, I, I do also want to add that um, there is a very, very straight line between this movie and Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I and again, very both movies about line. douchebags learning the douchebags. 
Yeah. And becoming better, uh, <laughs> at least in Scott Pilgrim, um, realizing... I think they spend more time focusing on Scott, like, actively showing that right. he's changed in the end. Yeah, which is... <laughs> and, and I think that's what... More, more coherently. This is what the movie of High Fidelity doesn't get. Is we don't get a yeah. lot of time of him realizing. Or even once, like, I think they... Not just realizing, because I feel like he does realize he's kind of uh, a garbage bag, but he doesn't want to <laughs> accept it or something like that, I would say. Cause well, yeah, like, sometimes it's hard person. to, like, it's one thing to acknowledge, but it's hard to change. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, Seamus. Or he doesn't think that there's anything wrong with these. Like, yeah, I do mean things, and I guess you could argue that Laura was right to leave me because of this list of incredibly shitty things I did, but that's not what I would want her to do, and therefore I am mad. Uh, I assume you were about to talk about cinematography. Yeah, Seamus McGarvey is the one who shot this. He also shot Atonement. Yeah, that's why. And The Avengers. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah, same. What? Yeah, he, he shot The Avengers. He shot the American Gareth Edwards Godzilla. He shot Fifty Shades of Grey. He shot uh, The Greatest Showman. And uh, just... So is this just, just a guy who's, like... Just, just is like, yeah, shows it's, it's up a... and is like, let's let's make some movies, motherfucker. This guy who's he's here like, to work. He's a genuine cinematographer, like... Because High Fidelity looks really good in a way that... It looks amazing. Yes. In a way that Juliet Naked doesn't. No. Yeah, I would... Well, I think that's also because Chicago is better than anywhere right. in the UK. <laughs> but I think also... <laughs> <laughs> Which is odd, because Juliet Naked is a movie that I find more interesting. Yes. In a yes. way. Uh, which... I, I no, think it's, like... Way, way. I, I don't know if it's... I don't know if it's reflective of the book, but, like, just storytelling-wise, it clearly is, is sort of more mature in its understanding of relationships. Well, yeah, I, I think, think it's very much Nick Hornby looking back at the high fidelity is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to not make amends, but, like, try to understand or do a better job. Yeah. Um, because as kids... We'll explain. Juliet Naked is basically high fidelity from the woman's point of view. <laughs> yeah. I, that is a very good way to uh, think about it. Um, do, do you want me to, to, to go through this yes. movie, which I deeply love? Yeah, hit it. And everyone in it is a great deal more likable because everyone in it is... So um, Juliet Naked came out in, what, 2018? And it's based yes. on the 2009 novel, which the original um, High Fidelity was a 1995 novel. So in both of these, they're about, like, 15 years later. And literally, that's kind of what this is, is like, okay, so these things worked out this way. What happens when these types of people continue doing what they're doing? Um, so Juliet Naked is about... A, Main character is a woman named Annie Platt who lives in a small town, do nothing uh, English town side, uh, taking over a job that she had from her dad, who's passed away at a local museum, and she's in a very comfortable relationship with her long-term boyfriend. Um, oh, what's his name? Duncan. Duncan. And Duncan is John Cusack, Rob, uh, all grown up. So Duncan works at a small local university teaching about how great um, um, how great modern television is. And he's obsessed with a single indie rock album from 1995 from this guy named um, Tucker, Crow. Tucker Crow. And he's obsessed with Tucker Crow. He runs a small website. He's an obsessive fan. He talks about Tucker Crow all the time. And Andy's beginning to be exhausted. She's exhausted 
with living in a place she doesn't want to be, in a job she doesn't want to have, in a relationship that doesn't seem to be growing and it's just stagnating. And she's really, really, really fucking sick of hearing about this one album <laughs> by this one guy 20 years ago. She is so over it. And uh, they get a demo. What kicks everything off is a demo or like first run through of the album comes through and of course it's raw and unfinished and Duncan loses his mind over how great it is and she's like nope it's just an unfinished bunch of shitty songs and she writes a really mean review uh, against his review on the website and Tucker Crow himself reaches out to her and unlike Duncan's paranoid fanboy conspiracy theories Tucker Crow is a burnout he's not made any music in 20 plus years he has one two three four four or five this becomes a discussion at several points. Kids with as many women. Um, his children range in age from 20-something to uh, maybe seven. And he lives in one of his ex's garage, which is not converted into an apartment, is overweight, and clearly has the voice of someone who's been drinking and smoking way too long for too many years. And he and Annie begin a correspondence where she confesses her incredibly safe life bores her, and he comforts her and explains that his incredibly unsafe life destroyed him. And eventually they get closer, Annie does not reveal to Duncan this problem, and Duncan has an affair confesses the affair to her, explains after confessing he feels better, and Annie says they're done. <laughs> she is no longer happy in this relationship. She was unhappy before he cheated on her, and she's even more unhappy now. And so they are very sadly pulling themselves apart because they were together for a long time, and he didn't do this horrifying performative wronging of her. It was just like a slow, sad falling apart. And uh, eventually Tucker comes to visit one of his kids in London, who is English, ends up having a terrible heart attack, and he and his youngest son crash with Annie for a while, where they slowly develop their relationship. Duncan realizes that Annie is, in fact, kind of not, but kind of dating his idol. Uh, they have a few discussions about that, and Annie and Tucker slowly get closer, where they discuss their sadness at the ways their life has gone, if it's too late to start over, the fact that Annie wants kids, and that, and that uh, Tucker is terrified of the fact he's become a grandfather and lost his chance. Tucker also ultimately confesses that he literally abandoned one of his children as a baby. Like, the reason he never made another album is during a performance he was given... Uh, the album that he made is Juliet about a girl named Juliet who broke his heart and during the performance Juliet comes up and hands him a baby explains it's his and he freaks out puts the baby in a bathroom sink and runs out of the building and realizes he can never sing about that sad sack album again because he is the worst person in this story and eventually uh, Annie and Duncan have one last talk where Duncan realizes that he misses her, he loves her, and wants to get back together, and that he is willing to have kids for her if that's what Annie really wants, which is a quiet plotline. And Annie realizes she doesn't want a comfortable life with Duncan. She doesn't want to stay in this town, she certainly doesn't have kids with him, she wants to move to London, do whatever the hell she wants, and maybe be a single mom and continue to talk to her friend Tucker, who by this point has moved back to the States. They continue to communicate and eventually comes out to visit her again, and the end of the movie implies that maybe they try being a couple and seeing if they can be better people, and there is a great end credit scene where Duncan reviews Tucker's new album for the first time in 25 years and absolutely hates it because it's no longer about sad sack love, but in fact a 50-year-old man talking about how what happiness is like. Did I do a good job? Yes. Please praise me. Yeah, it was a... Uh, it doesn't fucking suit him! No, I, I think... <laughs> 
Although I think you did uh, skip over the, the, the phone call where he attempts to reach out to the daughter that he abandoned in the bathroom. And she um, is, But we can talk about that yeah, later. Yeah, she's not having it um, at all, which is a great moment because usually these things don't go that way. I was so happy that they did, that, that was the right. yeah. They have one interaction over the phone. She says exactly what like her boundaries are and what she feels about this, and that's the end of it. Like, Tucker is an amazing kind of a hero in this movie in a terrible way because he's a <laughs> he's a bad irresponsible person who is burnt out clearly um at one point he explains that he's an alcoholic he has a heart attack again in his 50s because he's lived a terrible dangerous unhealthy lifestyle all of these women and kids mm. gather in his hospital room to loudly argue and he realizes his life is full of terrible terrible mistakes and he not only feels bad about it but has learned from it and wants to make it up to yeah. them and when they say i don't want you to make this up to me i don't want to have anything to do with you he says okay okay well again this... he never pushes anyone's yeah. boundary he never forces himself on people he accepts what he's done has consequences it's it's really nice but... i i think why it works is much like with john kuzak Ethan Hawke. Oh, oh yeah, let us let us talk about the man, the myth, the legend, uh, Ethan Hawke. He just crushing it as a sad, it. burned out guy. Well, like he's so easygoing, and like he is playing kind of a dick bag, but like a, a morsel yeah. dick bag, and it's like so in his wheelhouse. <laughs> but like, there's that moment where Tucker meets Duncan for the first time, and Duncan doesn't realize it's Tucker. <laughs> And the first thanks to having him on. He goes, and I'm fucking Stevie Wonder. We're all someone today. And walks off. And Tucker, he just, he just goes, wow. And just turns around and walks back to the kid. Yeah, he just laughs. And, like, the the thing that is, I, th- I would argue, is brilliant about this movie is that in a lot of ways, Tucker is, like, because Duncan, as Kara compared, is very much like the Rob character in one right. trajectory. I would say the Rob character having never learned his right. lesson, right? Having in a lot of ways, I not think, really learned. Right. Yeah. In a lot of ways, I think that uh, what we see from Ethan Hawke as as Tucker is the uh, a different kind of the Rob character having like eventually learned, right? Or the Jack lesson. Black character, and like, yeah, yeah, and actively trying to do the best that he can in a way that is so earnest and not just about him that it is a little shocking to see in a movie. Well, um, because like, I think what Kara said, like him taking other people's reactions to him, seri- like to what he, what he tries to do seriously, like is like, it's, it's not just about him trying to redeem himself. And that's, like, so much of movie storytelling, I think, is a little too focused on, like, redemption being something that you get points for right. trying. And that's what matters. And, like, in this, it's not. Because everybody is, is people. So, like, if you want to redeem yourself and the person you wronged is like, no, you don't get to go any further than this. You don't often see a character be like, well, okay, then. Also, I think, like, much like <laughs> High Fidelity shows how people obsessed with the thing talk. This one looks at him in a more sober view of, like, do you hear yourself? <laughs> Especially, yes. we, we've talked about this before, Thad, the death of the author. 
was in this yeah. movie they show as the strangling of the author, even while he's like, that's not what I'm saying. Why are you saying that? <laughs> yeah, like that That actually is, there's a, I like that that interaction that, that uh, Tucker and Duncan have when Duncan realizes who he actually is and, and they have like dinner and whatnot. And there's an interesting interaction that, that like reveals both of these characters' relationship to the, the, the work in question. Where like, Duncan is un like an unhinged fanboy, but like there is sort of an earnest moment of like this album meant something to me and it means something to all these weirdos who are obsessed with it. That is, for however bad and weird they are about it, that yeah. is real. And what it means to Tucker in the present is something very different and very deep and very like just heavy for him. But that doesn't change what it is out in the world it's 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 a very like it's a very interesting juxtaposition of like literally the art and the the artist and the audience like discussing a work past each other in a way where neither is exactly right. wrong like it's 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 a nice moment and i also think like it sort of goes into that fanboy thing of like why did he do this? Why did he do that? What does this mean? What does that mean? And it's like, well, what it meant to him or why he did that doesn't change necessarily what it means to you. Right. You can still be like, this is the most profound thing. And he's like, I wrote that when I was drunk. And both of those things can be true. And it's yeah. it's about how you can be sort of a healthy fanboy who respects other people. And also the, hmm. the, the male fanboy's desire to constantly be, um, have his ass kissed by the women around the, the him. one, yeah, well, the, the kind of approach to fandom where you have to win the fandom. Well, yes. the, like... when she, the, the best scene in this movie is when he's mad about no batteries. Because he wants to listen to the <laughs> yes. demo. And so she takes the batteries out of a vibrator and gives it to him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's, it's, it's so great because he's like, this hurts. But he takes them. <laughs> but he takes them. Because he's also having a hissy fit that she listened to it first. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Which, I, I don't know. This is a very though, good, I, this is a very good right. movie. I, I um. think the other thing is, is Duncan is in many ways a very sympathetic character to me. Because yeah. he's not... He's a little bit in his own ass and a little bit annoying, but to the right person, he's a perfect match. Right. It's just yeah. Annie is no longer that person, and she was once, but the way they've grown and changed, this isn't what she wants anymore. And it's yeah. it's a little bit sad in a way because when he cheats on her with this woman who is much more interested in his interests and wants to listen to him and fulfills him in the ways that Annie doesn't anymore, he recognizes, I have done something wrong and I need to talk to her about it. And Annie's kind of in denial about the fact that she's having an emotional affair. Mm. And it's like, no, this this thing that he did was because this relationship was broken. And in a way, he finally snapped it in half. And forced you both to make a reckoning. And the reckoning is, he's he's not good enough for you, Annie. Um, Tucker isn't either, <laughs> but you find him at least more interesting. Right. Well, and also, um, I love the fact that, like... She has a sister, the the lesbian sister, who also mm -hmm. doesn't have a shit together. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
There's a lot. There's a lot of really just all over the place people in this, and it's great. And the mayor who's oh, just oh, an officious prick. <laughs> oh god, yeah. Who it, like it took both of us a while to realize it, but he was the killer in the first episode yeah. of Sherlock. <laughs> uh. Annie has made her entire life making the safest possible choice, and it has not given her anything she's wanted. And so it's the the contrast of like when you do dumb things thoughtlessly how it bites you in the ass and when you do the safest things fearfully how that bites you in the ass and sort of I think the very adult struggle of being like okay how do I do things adventurously and safely without um crushing all of my hopes and dreams but also not becoming an alcoholic living in a garage right the damned if you do damned if you don't mm-hmm. yeah I I honestly like it's these. I'm really glad we watched these together. I think this is a great this is a pairing. Good, good, good uh, job, not, Jeremiah. Yeah. Good job. Yeah, not not just because <laughs> of the the like off the the book author behind the the original stories for both, but it's it also is very fascinating because like they both are very well cast movies. Um, I think the core casts in both movies are excellent, and it's weird though because I think that High Fidelity is a better made yes. movie. And I think Juliet Naked is a far better story with far more interesting I agree. Um, Uh, It's directed by a guy named Jesse Perrette, who hasn't really made good movies. (laughs) (laughs) He did Our Idiot Brother. He also did The X, which I encourage you sometime to just read the plot of The X. It's an awful idea. Oh, no. (laughs) No, I clicked on it. And I remember this movie. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but I, re- I remember knowing about this movie. I would actually say that um, High Fidelity is not a rom-com. No. Juliet mm. Naked is. Okay. Yeah. And I would, because... I think, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Because High Fidelity is, is a relationship movie, but not a romantic comedy, because a romantic comedy does, has to have options. <laughs> and, like, will right. they, won't they kind of thing. And the will they, won't they has to be based on their choices, kind of, which... Yeah. It, that one really isn't. I would say it's definitely a relationship movie that's a comedy. So it's I think it's a adjacent it's a for sure. Dep- it's a depressed, self-obsessed dude movie. Like like fifty. It's a it's years a movie summer. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like yes, that's ba- like it's a genre of, of predominantly two films. <laughs> uh, well, and also uh, of the three writers for Juliet Naked, two of them are women. Oh, okay. And that's why Annie there is so wonderfully uh, developed. And also why her breakup with Duncan is so sad. <laughs> I mean, it is, because it's a sad. It's the ending of a relationship. It's right. the ending of, of these things. And it's, you know, just because you break up with somebody, or even ugly, doesn't necessarily mean that you hate them, or yeah. that you even I don't think that... regret what you still had, said the girl who also broke yeah, up that, with someone that, after that's... seven years. <laughs> That's that's the thing that I think is interesting about, um, like, because cause High Fidelity, you get very few moments of Rob and Laura, like, when they're at good points in their relationship. Mm-hmm. And, like, when you see those, like, they, they have good chemistry and, and, like, and it works well. But, like, the thing that is in some ways, like, that's crucial to High Fidelity that I think destroys the ability of it to be, a, like, a, a serious story about a character growing in any way is that it's from Rob's perspective. <laughs> Well, I think also High Fidelity is almost as obsessed with Rob as Rob is with himself. 
Yes. Yes. In a way that yeah. Juliet naked isn't. No. It is. Uh, it I is agree. much stri- much more stripped down than High Fidelity, but like, it's more interested in all the other characters. Hmm. C- can I actually say something? Yeah. I feel like High Fidelity, and again, both of these are very bounded by their moments in time and what they want to discuss and talk about. Uh, hmm. In a way, Juliet Naked is actually harder for me to tease out what those things are because I'm still in that time. But High Fidelity is a hmm. movie about a relationship gone wrong and the man's perspective on what he wants to happen and his fantasies. And Juliet Naked is kind of the opposite. Um, because in High Fidelity, he ends up getting back together with the woman and she forgives him and everything is okay. And then... In um, Juliet Naked, it's much more along the lines of, I don't know if everything will be okay if I'll ever be happy, but I know I'm okay with being with myself. Right. When even then, it's like, I want to have kids with you. It's like, no, you don't. (laughs) It's like, maybe maybe you'll just use this woman back because your idol fancies me. (laughs) And he's like, okay, maybe, okay, that might have something to do with it. I think that has more... (laughs) But I also love, like, the notion of him walking into Duncan's room. Oh. <laughs> oh. oh. Duncan has, has what I can only call a fan shrine room. And to be clear... It's a shrine, absolutely. I do not say this with cruelty and judgment because I have a multitude of tiny shrines throughout my house to various things. Anyone who ever went into my room at the studio knows I had a shrine. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, mine are to like Batman, Yoshi, and fashion, but still. Uh, but yeah, this the great thing about this movie is these moments of tension of like, oh my god, there's going to be a wacky misunderstanding. They don't last for more than five to ten minutes at most. Right. But yeah, poor. poor... I would I would say that even that's a stretch. Like yeah, most of them are resolved almost immediately. Yeah, but Tucker it's a... walks into this house of this woman who's his pen pal, who he knows listened to a few of his albums and finds a room that's a complete shrine to him, that includes he's like, is that my twelfth grade like chess photo she's like is it well like i like the fact that she's honestly shocked like it is yeah (laughs) i'm just like duncan what the hell is the matter with you yeah and but that's that's one of the things that's so good about the character writing in this is that she explains what happens and he's like oh yeah yeah okay yeah that's Duncan." well not only that but also like the moment it's like you you tricked me to come in it's like you invited yourself oh yeah i did yeah, it was your idea. He's like, oh, yeah, it was. idea. You did try not to have me see this weird shrine to me. That's right. This is on me again. It does have also not a surprise. the old reliable joke of the Dusseldorf 85. Have I ever played the Dusseldorf? <laughs> I don't know this joke she said stupidly. Uh, um, so those are the two movies that... I honestly like I like the fact that Hoyme revisited the notion of high fidelity, I should say. Of just yeah. like yeah. taking a more mature and I don't want to say equally like equal response to, measured response to it, but it's sort of like I think No, I think mature is the I right think word. Yeah. What gets lost in conversation is we all as you grow older you age out of pop culture. Hmm. You don't no, relate never. to the art in the same way. No. <laughs> yeah. Don't tell me this. I know it's true, yeah, but I can't worry. believe it. <laughs> yeah, don't. Uh, she, she'll be fine. Right. 
Well, like, yeah, I I don't love, like, I don't do lists anymore. I don't like doing lists, but I'll do them for the site. Because, the, mm. like, I don't mind doing that. But, like, the whole top five of the best direct, like, I don't do that anymore. I don't engage with art in that way. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, such a narrow way. Yeah, I've, I've never been especially good at that. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I think um, you leave... As a general rule, you leave my top fives behind right around the time you stop having your bestest friend. Right. That you can't share with anyone else. Like, th- those are artifacts <laughs> of childhood, which, again, going back to high fidelity, doing that in your late 20s, early 30s as, like, your only way of communicating is a little bit of a lot. Especially when you have um, your list of no, top that's five just, that's, breakups. Kara, that's, that's just what we <laughs> The term man-child exists for a reason. Yeah, being being a child deep into adulthood. What else is it? <laughs> a miserable, a miserable pile, pile of secrets. Of secrets. <laughs> Beat me to it. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's all the time we have today. Oh, fine. Uh, uh, say I'll goodbye, Thad. Say goodbye, Kara. Yes. Uh, goodbye, farewell. Thaddeus. I'll see you soon. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time, folks.